Alexander in Mimesis by Alexander Augustus. Narrated by Mike Bodie. Mimesis Meliagris. There was one thought in Alexander's head, which dominated all others. What am I going to make? What would he leave behind when he was gone? He had awoken to his alarm 45 minutes earlier, fully clothed, dazed from a jet-lagged slumber. It was New Year's Eve, and his plane had landed from London less than twelve hours ago. Disoriented but driven, he tapped his pockets and recited, Phone, money, keys, and ventured out into the blistering cold. A light rain splattered his face. Snow from the road had been heaped onto the pavement. He traipsed across rolling peaks, a frozen diorama of the Appalachians, and chunky cars barged alongside him, shiny packages like oversized chocolate bars. There were no other pedestrians. At every junction, he pushed a big button on the telegraph pole and waited to be allowed to cross. The light seemed to never change. He would wait several minutes before a big orange hand waved him on and straight away a mocking cuckoo noise chastised him across the road. The electronic countdown began at two, forcing him to dash across the revving line of chocolate bars. It was Alexander's first time venturing out alone in Manchester. That is, Manchester, New Hampshire, New England, United States of America. Not, as he had believed when applying for the commission, Manchester, original England, not original Hampshire, and not the United Kingdom. He fumbled for his phone in his pocket, peeled off his left glove, and swiped up to call John. Oi, oi, Poo-Bum! Happy New Year! He shouted as the call was picked up. There was a pause, and then came John's signature nasal whine. Oh, no! Why'd you always call me that? I just have to do it, he replied. 
God told me to. God did no such thing. I spoke to him this morning. He's on my side. There is no God. Anyway, how's America going? Tell me everything. You know what you're doing for your work yet? I just arrived. The apartment's beautiful, and everyone's been kind. They took me shopping, so I woke up with loads of supplies. Everything has different names. The chili heatwave Doritos are in the nacho cheese packaging, and they still sell Lucky Charms and Sunny D. Weird. Don't all the herbs have different names, like Smedge and Augie? Yes, but I have a lovely big bed and a widescreen TV with all the channels on it. They even left me a bottle of champagne. I'm just going for a walk to check out the graveyard and, I don't know, these streets. I'm having weird feelings. Alexander's breath came out as plumes of steam in the frozen air. I feel like I'm in a psychological test. What? How so? I mean, not that you don't desperately need one or anything. Alexander could hear John being distracted by someone. He was probably at work. Yes, Gladys, I'll be down in a minute. No, no, leave it. I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Sorry, Alex. Keep going. He continued. When you enter a building, everyone is friendly and warm, and everyone smiles and the heating is blasting out full, but outside in the street, everything is so cold. I mean, psychologically, it's not really human. No one else is out walking, and they look at me from inside their sealed machines like I'm mad for being outside. They've not even cleared the pavement. But you're out in a blizzard, right? You texted me there's a snowstorm. It's fine. The evening sun was as distant and cold as a silver coin, but beautiful. The wind gusted cold, flattening Alexander's clothes against his body. He thought, if I poured some laminating resin or even watered down wood glue on my clothes now, it would set into a very strange sculpture. He imagined it cast in bronze. But what would the concept be? On reflection, he decided it was a stupid idea. Are you still there, Alex? Yeah, sorry. I was just thinking. What if the whole city was like a circuit for the cars to zip round, and every now and then they drop a little human in to see what they do? Today, that human is me, and they're driving around, filming me from behind tinted windows, checking out how I react to all these snow-piled pavements and a blizzard and these giant cartoon-sized buttons which you push but don't do anything. The buttons? Replied John, voice faint as he moved away from the phone. Explains why people are so friendly in the safe harbour of shops and bars, and why they look so anxious when they see me outside. They're all driven by the collective trauma, on the run from huge chocolate bar machines in the streets which speed around searching for pedestrians to squash. See how the piles of snow on the pavement keep pushing you into the road? So they can squash you better. The buttons are crossings are just traps to keep me waiting in one place while the robots hunt me down. It's the tyranny of the manufacturing industry which keeps the people of Manchester locked up indoors. But they don't trick me. <laughs> I've been jaywalking all over the place. I've already broken the law about a hundred times. I'm not waiting at the lights like an obedient rat. Did you know the game Pong was invented here? John? Alex, I'm sorry. I have to go. I'm run off my feet. Uh, happy New Year! <laughs> Bye, bumhead. Happy New Year. Alexander hung up and let the idea slip away. It wasn't very good anyway. The wind whipped the unworthy ideas out of his head, but they were replaced by others, rising like phantoms from every nook and corner. His mind raced. 
He fixed on his phone again, brought up music by An Yun, a Korean singer. Something classical and dramatic. She sang about ghosts and goblins. He was going to a graveyard after all, and later to a bar. Crows cawed from a telegraph pole. He passed a cluster of New England wooden slated houses, familiar from the sets of all 90s slasher films, and turned a corner by a tattoo parlor. Someone shouted, hostile, and he kept walking, glancing at the street sign which read, Grove Street. He had been warned to avoid street names named after trees. Next to it he read, Pine Street. He put his head down and hurried. He came to the graveyard. The howling wind dropped as soon as he entered. The trees were leafless, skeletal. Everywhere he looked there were statues and carvings and rough-hewn images. Snowflakes whirred and dizzied in front of him. And he pulled his collar tight about his neck. Valley Cemetery was a timeless place. Even more so buried in virgin snow. The Kayagum string screeched in his ears, and the Chango drums boomed in time to Yun's shamanic tales of bloodshed and witchcraft. He passed the first mausoleum, pointed, gothic, ornate, dedicated to someone with the name Aritas Blood. He inspected the gravestones, photographing everything. The headstones were weathered, and only a few had sprays of fresh flowers resting against them. He felt himself looking for the spark, the story, the motif which might show him what to make, the cog which might get the whole wheel turning. This was the deal. Make something, move on. On to Korea, on to Mexico, on to Colombia, on to Germany, leaving little pieces of himself behind everywhere he went. There were Freemason symbols all over the gravestones. There were many crosses also, and flowers, linked chains and scepters within triangles, hearts in palms. One common motif was a closed palm, index finger pointing up towards heaven. Was it an instruction? As if these human hands would dare tell the great almighty where to send their souls after burial? He thought it could be funny to rotate every hand by 180 degrees as an indication of where the bodies had actually gone into the cold, hard ground. But what will I make before I leave this place? He focused. Many graves only had the words mother, or brother, sister, husband, even aunt. One slab had sunk down into water, now frozen so only the was visible, trapped in time. Others were imposing blocks of stone with trade-related surnames printed across, Baker, Shepherd, Taylor, Plumber, Smith, Farmer, Page. And some surnames which were also place names, French, Cornish, Bolton, York. It seemed like each stone was its own elevator pitch to the afterlife. In a few words, the deceased put across their case for how they should be remembered, why they should ascend to heaven. That desire to make an impact was relatable. Describe yourself in five words or less, as a dating app might say. He opened the dating app on his phone and compared the grid of graves to the grid of profiles, finding where a grave said, Father, and its online counterpart said, Daddy. Where a grave presented a finger pointing up, the dating profile presented an arrow pointing up accompanied by top four bottom where the app said, professional and sorted. Stones which said, cook, miller, 
or clock. Where a grave said French, a profile with a French flag. He smiled. This one could be funny. Call it Memento Mori. A message flashed up from a user named Do It N Find Out. He was a large man with a pink face like fried bacon. Below his sweaty chins hung two oversized dark nipples like molding pepperonis on an old pizza. The message read, Hi, I'm TJ and my fantasy is to be gang raped by at least ten guys. This was followed by, Daddy would like to know how many credit card debt you have got because I will be paying it off for you starting from today, baby. Alexander shut the dating app. He opened his notes and typed out the concept in a few sentences, then moved on. He wandered between Luke and Sarah, baby Charlie and Thomas. A grave labeled Sleeper seemed poetic. Another named Dick Towel, only unfortunate. He passed a naked woman clutching an amphora, and beyond her was some kind of Egyptian tomb with columns fashioned into bundles of papyrus reeds. The tomb stood tall, and bits had been chipped from the edges of the columns and friezes as though the teeth of time had been nibbling at them. He liked the description and wrote it down. Next to the tomb, a set of graves were shaped modestly, like large bricks, and set in a row. The names David, Esther, Elizabeth, Latisse. Gosh, thought Alexander. Where's Carrot buried? and the twin sisters Brussel and Sprut. <laughs> he counted 13 mausoleums in total, and a quick Google search confirmed it. 13 was a good number for a graveyard, and a glance up at one of the fluttering star-spangled banners reminded him that there were also 13 original colonies in the US, represented in those 13 horizontal lines. M, the 13th letter of the alphabet, was the symbol of Manchester. The mausoleums ranged from Celtic tombs with intricate devil-repelling knotwork, miniature Gothic revival cathedrals with budding buttresses and flowering turrets piercing the sky, a Parthenon the size of a one-man tent with rows of ionic columns supporting the roof like rows of coffin-bearers, and, of course, the tiny Egyptian tomb. It was a global village for the dead. There could be something interesting in this train of thought, he reflected. The Parthenon was Doric, though, not Ionic. He moved on again. He came upon two graves slightly set apart from the others, each with only one name, Augustus and Frank. An odd combination. Were they brothers? Father and son? His own name was Alexander Augustus, but he felt sorry for Frank. At least call him Franklin, or Frankenstein, or Frankincense. It's like calling your children Romulus and Jim, or Tiberius and Keith. He imagined the adventures of Tiberius and Keith as a children's book with cardboard pages and garish colors. Tiberius would be a great Dane. More intricate graves had been carved in sandstone, which had worn away into soft imprints, ghosts of memories. Mary Jane and Richard A. had almost faded into obscurity the simpler, hardier stones were granite, no doubt dug from New Hampshire itself. It was the granite state after all. He pulled out his phone and opened his notes again. An exchange. We excavate a lump of stone and bury a lump of flesh in its place. 
This is the sacred pact between the mountain gods and the people of Manchester, New Hampshire. A human body for one boulder of stone and safe passage to the afterlife. The words were clumsy, but the idea was nice. He could sculpt a digital model on his laptop and CNC it into a granite block with a six and nine axis drill. But he didn't want to be morbid. He always found himself talking about death, but death didn't sell, nor politics, as his gallerist repeatedly told him. As he crossed the lands of the dead, a basin opened up as large as a football pitch, and a network of hills and paths came into view. Snowflakes whirled from the sky, and as he looked out, he experienced a moment of deja vu. I've been here before, he thought. Again, alarm bells rang. He felt like he was under examination. He swiped the camera up on his phone and pointed it at the ground. A glassy layer of ice glimmered over the patterned tracks of some vehicle or other, cascading into the dip and out of view. The wheel marks had compressed the ice into tessellated spinal columns, which became intricate and thin where the marks were close and wide and elongated where they had veered off and separated. The spine of the graveyard, frozen spine of Manchester, as though the bones of the city were showing, and he imagined what Manchester might look like if its sentience awoke and the city dragged itself out of the ground as an organism. An illustration, animation, sculpture. He lodged his souls into the grooves and found stability in the pattern's grip although sometimes they led him away from the things he wanted to see. He descended the basin slope, down into the belly of Valley Cemetery. With evening drawing in, the world was losing light and color. Alexander's ears ached and his feet were numb. He buried his hands in his pockets, fingers closed about his old broken iPhone plugged into an emergency battery pack. Everything he owned was old and broken, running out of time. He desperately needed to make something which would bring in some money. He imagined his work as little ambassadors which he assembled, wound up and let free into the world. He imbued them with life, and in return they should bring him something good or useful. He was their creator, after all. Prestige, he thought. Yes, they've brought me some of that. Articles and shows, international projects. But now I need money, little Alexanders, if I'm ever to make a home. Bring me money for a home. The panic was setting in again. He crouched to inspect a particular motif. It appeared to be a cock or a vortex, bound spinning within an ellipse. He was captivated, and after he had noticed one, he could not help but spot others on every naped, beveled, and marched surface, wheels, cogs, portals. Sometimes they were carved in plumes of leaves, sometimes in machinery or wooden spindles, sometimes in the fancy ends of carved parchment scrolls, or in the patterning of human hair, or flashes of light, or as twisting petals of rose blossom. They looked like wheels, machine wheels from the Manchester looms. He recalled his neuro-art history lectures, Professor Onions explaining how the visual patterning of our environment can imprint on our subconscious minds, how ionic columns were derived from the shapes of Athenian sails, rolled up into swirling bundles. Did factory workers in Manchester deliberately decorate their graves with twisting cogs, 
or was it a subconscious manifestation of the machinery of the industrial town? This idea had potential, and the atmosphere seemed to agree as long orange sunbeams lit every surface in an ethereal glow. He took pictures, but the effect was lost on camera. When he looked up from his phone, he saw them, the creatures. A leathery leg planted itself in front of him and was followed by a breastplate of iridescent, murky bronze plumage. The bare skin on the face and neck was humanish, with dark eyes peering alertly and a sharp and dangerous weapon mounted on its face, with which it cooed in a gentle way. There were a lot, too many to count. Cooing, clucking, the turkeys gathered around the intruder. They had caught him by surprise, emerging all together from behind the tomb directly ahead of him. His skin prickled, not with cold. Their sheer size was stunning. He pulled out his earphones and stuffed them back in his pocket. There were between 12 and 15 of them, he guessed, standing erect on slender dinosaur legs. The closest turkey was looking at him with beady eyes that seemed to both see and not see him. Alexander dared not move for what seemed like minutes until the turkey ruffled its breast feathers, dropped its foreleg, and led the group around him like a procession, like a line of mourners. As they passed, he noted their shape and scale, how the plumage was divided into sections, each with its own patterning and style. Some parts tessellated, like the fretting on ancient samurai armor. Other parts sported markings you might see on a big cat or a dinosaur. These were ancient creatures, and they prowled amongst the gravestones like guardians of the dead. He pulled out his phone and began to film. The birds circled him in wide arcs to his left and right, and then they continued round and began to circle him again. Round and round they went, eyeing him from tilted heads, squawking softly. What kind of primordial ritual was this? He remembered seeing videos of turkeys circling dead animals on the internet, weird funeral marches around dead cats, rats, roadkill. The name Turkey has been unfairly smeared. There's nothing comical or stupid about you. A quick Google search told him that the Latin name was Meliagris, and he said it out loud. I will call you Meliagris. These Meliagris were a perfect subject for his work. They continued a bird theme which he had established through previous projects in London, Incheon, and Berlin, but they were also specific to America. Most of all, he knew exactly how he would sculpt them. His phone spasmed and blacked out. He swore and fumbled for a sketchbook and began to record the forms, feather sections, and patterning by hand. Still, the turkeys circled him. Within the eye of their storm, time seemed to stand still. Nothing else outside the circle moved. All cars were parked. Every crow was quiet. Not even the wind stirred. There were 13 turkeys. Perhaps if the eagle is the sun god of America, the Meliagris is the moon god, deities of the overworld and underworld. Alexander began to sketch gothic turrets on the backs of some of his Meliagris shapes, 
He drafted columns and classical friezes on others, a scattering of symbols, names, and dedications, hands, grave markings, status symbols. He was becoming more certain of a story. From the continuing procession, one Meliagra stepped forward, brandishing something shiny in its beak. The giant fowl bobbed cautiously towards him and dropped a coin into the snow at his feet. He knelt down to pick up the quarter. It read, New Hampshire, 1788. Live free or die. He repeated aloud, Live free or die. The turkeys cooed. The hen who had dropped the coin cocked its head, angled one leg forward, and spoke in a croaky grandmother's voice. Alexander, listen. You are in grave danger. In astonishment, he stepped back, tripped on something unseen under the snow, and slid on the treacherous ground. He fell, and his head cracked against a stone edge. The world rolled and spun. He felt something streaming down his face. The Meliagris let out wailing ululations and scattered in panic. All the carved wheels were spinning and whirring. Light shot up into the atmosphere. He could smell something sweet and toxic, like a fried electrical circuit. A thin strip of white tore through the sky, circling the earth like a celestial contrail. It made a deep, vibrating bass tone, which he could feel in the pit of his stomach. A voice boomed, seemingly from everywhere. It echoed through the universe. line thickened and split, and with a slurping noise, the sky peeled back, revealing bright light shooting through tubes, liquids bubbling in vessels, a sudden, lurching view of paneled walls and several impossibly large figures silhouetted against them. It overwhelmed his eyes to look at them. They peered down into the graveyard. Alexander felt the spinning and roiling of the world reach a crescendo. In a final act of defiance, he managed to say, I know what I will make. I know what I will leave behind. Sleep took him then, without his notice. Snow continued to settle as white moths over his body. One of the colossal beings stepped forward towards the sky. A commanding female voice said, It must be a weirdly disturbing scene for you. Alexander, but sentimentality is not something we can afford. These resources will cost you dearly. Another figure stepped forward, holding some sort of console, and at impossible speed the sun shot across the sky from west to east and twilight ascended into dawn. The ice around Alexander's body glimmered like scattered diamonds in the long morning light, and as his blood pooled, the diamonds burst into rubies. The central figure leant forward and into the light of the world. It was a man, the exact 
image of Alexander, but decades older. He clicked his tongue and reached somewhere over the horizon and out of frame. I'll have a headache from this. You've got a great idea, though. I was right not to reset this tank. Something is odd here, but it's all so good. He leaned into the world and appeared to examine little Alexander's shoes. Let's get proper boots in all the tanks, though, he said. The first female voice rang out again, sharp and accusing. I do not trust you, Alexander. I do not trust this tank. No, I got what I needed, the giant Alexander said. I'm sorry you've got less mana than usual. Reabsorb him and get going on the others. I don't have to remind you of our contract. Mimesis is in mana factory, Alexander. Don't forget how you pay. The figure with the console loomed again and all the cars in Manchester began to reverse away from their parked spaces and travel towards the city power substation. This operation underway, a voice said, Racer atmosphere, time, magnetic field fluctuations, reboot AI protocols. Light and shadow danced across the world. And in a far corner of the graveyard, the Meliagris huddled together, pecking at the ground. They seemed to pay little attention to the giant arm of the giant Alexander, lifting little Alexander up and into the sky. He dropped the body into his mouth and chewed. And as he chewed, there was a leakage of something which was not entirely blood. There was a distant smell of burst fuses and burning insulation wire. As he swallowed, implants embedded in his corneas were shot through with neon blue and red. He groaned and doubled over. He shook himself down and straightened up. Uh, yes, interesting. Two fingers massaging his temple, he looked over the scene and smiled down at the turkeys. Mimesis is a manufactory, Alexander, he muttered. The mirror-gray sky faded back to darkness, and the contrails met and dissipated. Heaven vanished from sight. The turkeys gobbled and gathered in a circle, discussing tactics. <laughs> 